When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and miniseries. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate hosts a Let It Roll telepathic interview with the still-living but unavailable James Felge, author of Nankering with the Rolling Stones. Felge was the fourth roommate at the legendary flat on Edith Grove, where Brian Jones, Mick Jagger, and Keith Richards lived as they formed the Rolling Stones. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm not summoning a spirit. Instead, I'm telepathically connecting with somebody I could not get on the show who's still with us on the planet, and his name is James Felge. He's the author of a book called Nankering with the Rolling Stones, the Untold Story of the Early Days. And in case you're wondering who James Felds is, Jimmy Felds is the guy who lived with Mick Jagger, Brian Jones, and Keith Richards in a filthy hovel in Edith Grove while they put together the lineup of the Rolling Stones that became rich and famous. He was their roommate. When they met Andrew Lou Goldham, who became their manager, he was their roommate when they met Giorgio Gomelski, who later managed the Yardbirds and other groups who almost became the Stones' first manager. In fact, who thought he became the Stones' first manager, but was discarded quickly when Andrew Lou Goldham came on the scene with Eric Eastman. Uh, Felge was also there when the Beatles came to the Stones' apartment for the first meeting. He was there when the, the Stones first heard Love Me Do by the Beatles, the first Beatles record. He was there um, for a lot of it. He saw Brian Jones, Keith Richards, and Mick Jagger interacting on an intimate level every day for months. And then the narrative is also fascinating because 
it tells what it's like to be a regular guy who's best friends with a bunch of people who become rock stars and the way that relationship eventually fades away as they go off to travel the world and be rock stars and the regular guy stays at home in London to work as a printer. So that's that's James Feld's Nakering with the Rolling Stones, the untold story of the early days. It's 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 something else. As somebody who's been obsessed with trying to figure out why am I fascinated with Brian Jones? What did he do in the Stones? Why did everybody hate him? Where did he go wrong? What value did he add? This book was absolutely invaluable. And um, it starts out with uh, Jimmy Feld's doing a flashback scene from or flash forward with an intro where he's an older dude and he's going to see the Rolling Stones. They've sent him passes and he describes navigating the security apparatus and the arena and getting back and getting back to the trailers and getting to have, you know, a few minutes talking to Charlie and Keith. I don't think Mick uh, is around at that point. And then, and then from there he goes into the narrative, which starts with the, the, the evening he goes to see an incipient Rolling Stones. This is before they even had Bill Wyman or Charlie Watts in the band. He goes to see him at, I believe the Ealing club in London. And, um, they announced that they need a roommate. Mick announces from the, uh, microphone that they need a roommate. Felge is, living on the edges of London and is, is kind of a beatnik. He's working as a printer's apprentice and he just decides to go for it and said, Hey, you know, walks up to the guy, Hey, I could, I could use a place to stay. What's, what's the cost? And they negotiate a deal and he agrees, I believe to move into it sight unseen, gets a friend of his to uh, bring a car the next Saturday and comes to see the, the apartment. And then, when he does, he's staggered by the filth and squalor they're living in. The the sinks are absolutely filled with greasy, filthy pots and pans. Nobody's dusted or picked anything up. The apartment came pre-furnished. They've been picking pieces of the furnish the furniture off to burn in the fireplace, of which they're going to be doing a lot more later. It was the kind of apartment where you had to put a few coins in an electric heater to heat the apartment. So if you had no money, which the Stones didn't, you could be sitting there all day long, very, very cold. And he describes the early dynamic while Mick is going to the London School of Economics every day, and he's going off to work, and Brian and Keith have nowhere to go and nothing to do, so they stay home and shiver and play guitar and listen to records for six, eight hours a day. And this creates this dynamic where Brian and Keith are incredibly close. They have their own language. They... Um, play cruel jokes on everyone else. They talk in funny voices. Their nankering voice is one of them. And uh, nankering is important because Nanker Felge becomes the name of the original songwriting credit the Stones used for their collaborative group pieces. Before Mick and Keith were a songwriting team, the Stones would occasionally write songs as a unit, and they credited them to Nanker Felge. Nanker was their name for the faces that Brian and Keith would make, and Felge was Jimmy Felge, the author of this book. And that that becomes you know significant in Stone's business uh, history, and that's probably where most fans have seen the word Nanker uh, is is uh, the Nanker Felge credits on the, on the songwriting credits. And, and it's interesting. They've been retroactively recrediting songs that were originally credited to Nanker Felge to Jagger Richards in, in recent years. I believe um, uh, Don't Play With Me, You're Playing With Fire was originally a Nanker Felge uh, composition that's retroactively been credited to Jagger Richards. Now, Paul Trinka, 
Brian Jones biographer, when I spoke to him, he said that Jack Nietzsche, who played keyboards on that track, had told Trinka's source, Nietzsche's been dead for a while, that the part he played was composed by Brian Jones, and that's why it was an Ankerfelge song credit. But that's that's neither here nor there. In this book, um, th that that particular incident doesn't come up. But the dynamic is very clear. And what comes up is that initially, Brian and Keith had this extremely close relationship and were extremely rude and had lots of fun at everyone else's expense. And Mick was on the outs. And Mick started acting out um, in different ways, including flouncing around the house. And Feldes doesn't talk this part up so much. Keith Richards is the one in, other, in this 1971 uh, Rolling Stones interview, Rolling Stone magazine interview that talks about this, and also with Philip Norman uh, in his biography, The Stones, that Mick went through a period of, of flouncing, quote, quote unquote, flouncing around and, and mincing around and acting very effeminate. And so Brian and Keith got more and more butch in response. But one thing that I didn't know until I read this book was that Brian and Keith were so frustrated with Mick's seemingly lack of commitment to the band that they started trying to form an Elverly Brothers style duet act. Now, given that Keith Richards is infamous as the background vocalist who sings in every key at once, and Brian Jones only recorded vocals on a few very early Stones tracks. And when he is audible. He sounds like a kid trying to sound like Howlin' Wolf, a white kid trying to sound like Howlin' Wolf. You can only imagine what Keith and Brian as a singing duet sounded like. And it wasn't something that they pursued very long, although they, they put serious effort into it for a couple of weeks. And Mick was especially salty during this period. But let's go ahead and hear... Uh, a song from the Rolling Stones' first demos. These were recorded by Glenn Johns at the studio he worked at in London, and these were never released officially. They were recorded on spec. The studio had the rights to them, and it was a, a incumbent upon the studio to license or put out these records, find a, find a record company to put these out, and, and they never did. But this is the Rolling Stones doing Jimmy Reed's Bright Lights, Big City. was the Rolling Stones in 1963 uh, doing a demo recording of Jimmy Reed's Bright Lights, Big City. This is the classic Rolling Stones lineup with Mick Jagger on vocals, Brian Jones and Keith Richards on guitars, Bill Wyman on bass, Charlie Watts on drums, and Stuart, Ian Stewart Sutcliffe, not Stuart Sutcliffe, he was in the Beatles, Ian Sutcliffe, uh, Stu, Ian Stu Sutcliffe on piano. Stu is going to get fired here in a bit, but at this point he was still a full member of the band. And this is also, I think, I picked this one because by all accounts, Brian Jones was the absolute dictator of the band at this point, and this is what he wanted the band to be. And you can also hear in this song what Stu uh, and others called Brian and Keith's 
twin guitar attack where both players are playing lead parts. One guy goes up the neck, the other guy goes down the neck. It's really only on these Jimmy Reed songs and a few others where they really do that. They played in other more complicated ways. And I think the rhythm guitar is actually the most interesting thing, but that's much harder to describe. and was probably harder to pick out for a pianist like Stu. Anyway, that's the, the, the first track, but back to the, the story. And then, um, Felt is there when they first hear Love Me Do. Now, the, the whole plan of Brian Jones and Mick and Keith, when, when it was Brian's vision, he's the guy who put the ad in the paper, said, I'm going to form a band. So they, they saw Brian playing at Alexis Corner's Ealing Club in London. I believe he was playing with Paul Pond, who later became um, Paul Jones, the singer of Man for Man. Uh, Brian and Keith had met while Pond was at Oxford and Brian was still home in Cheltenham, which is in the west of England. And they had come down to London together for a weekend and performed with Alex Corners uh, Blues Incorporated. And Brian blew everybody away by playing slide guitar, which apparently nobody in England until Brian, other, I'm sure other people were playing slide guitar, but the legendary approach is nobody in England knew what slide guitar was or had figured out how those bluesmen on the records were making that crazy sound until Brian Jones shows up in London and says, oh, you put a glass ring on your finger and slide it up and down the strings and you you, you do an open tuning and and that's how you do it. And he played um, uh, Dust My Broom um, and it was, it was a earth shattering moment for Mick and Keith and they were awed, overawed by Brian Jones. And when he was talking about, he was looking to form a band and then put an ad in the paper. Ian Stewart was the first person to answer it. And then Mick and Keith both started showing up and Brian struggled and Alexis Corner and various other people advised him, you know, pick one or the other. Don't let both of those guys in your band because they'll just take it over. That's advice maybe Brian Jones should have heeded, but had he heeded it, we wouldn't have the Rolling Stones. He he made sort of a John Lennon decision when Lennon hired McCartney. His dilemma was, do I bring in somebody who's clearly extremely talented and, and charismatic so that the band is better, or do I keep him out so that I have more control of the band? Lennon chose to bring in McCartney and 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 have a better band, and Brian Jones chose to bring in both Mick and Keith and have a better band, and and that's what happened. And then shortly around this time, uh, they they get their hands on Love Me Do, and the and the plan had been we're going to commercialize what we call rhythm and blues meaning Chicago blues, meaning electric blues by the likes of Muddy Waters, Jimmy Reed, Helen Wolf that were heard on labels like Chess and VJ. Jimmy Reed was on VJ, uh, which is an African-owned label out of Chicago, but nonetheless, um, yeah, it's all Chicago here. And and that was the vision. And they, their thinking was, we're young, sexy dudes. We're going to have a cool, hip look which they certainly accomplished. And we're going to use this, we're going to popularize this music by using, creating ourselves as pop stars and, and this music will be our catalog. And so when they heard the Beatles doing Love Me Do, which isn't really a blues song, but it's bluesy and has harmonica on it. And John Lennon played it fairly bluesy on that record. And so the Stones hear this record and they're absolutely gobsmacked and terrified that, oh my God, somebody's going to beat us to the punch. Somebody's already beat us to the punch. Now, James Felch and others try to reassure him that, no, these guys aren't as bluesy as you. This isn't the real thing. This is some 
pop crap from Liverpool, but the Stones weren't fooled and felt that they would be seen as imitators following in the wake of the Beatles, which they were. They, that's how they were seen. They they did kind of spearhead uh, a British R&B explosion in 1964, but it happened in the aftermath of the beat group explosion that the Beatles had triggered in 1963. Their second single was written by the Beatles. So they were initially seen very much as happening in the shadow of the Beatles, which was unavoidable given the the amount of shade that the, the Beatles took, the sunlight that the Beatles took up and the amount of shadow they left in their wake. Nonetheless, the Stones um, press on and uh, they they start working with Giorgio Gamelski. They um, put the band together. They bring in Bill Wyman and Felge has plenty of insights. These are stories that have been told many times about how Brian and Keith in particular were extremely rude to Bill Wyman, that they only were interested in him for his uh, impressive two amplifier collection that he brought with him and that they both commandeered and played, leaving him to play through a much smaller amp. And, and that was, uh, um, you know, just classic way they treated him. And I, I wanted to read a little bit, um, from Felch's book, just to give you the flavor of what living with Brian and Keith was like in 1963. He says, I was in the kitchen on the following Saturday morning, polishing my fashionable Chelsea boots. And those are what we're known as beetle boots. Now, when Brian and Keith came in, what are you cleaning your shoes for? Demanded Keith because they're fucking dirty. I replied, they need some polish. How fucking Ernie sneered Keith. Why is that? Only fucking Ernie's clean their shoes. What's the point, Keith chided. They only get dirty again. And Ernie's is what they called the working men who ate at the same cafe near the apartment in Edith Grove. So they have utter contempt for these proletariat working guys who are Ernie's. And and Brian and Keith uh, spend a lot of time exchanging verbal barbs and getting and threats with these Ernie's at the local place. So back to the story, he said, I looked at Keith's shoes. No, they had not been cleaned recently. Probably never, judging by the scuff marks all over him. And then Brian jumps in, and I'm going to – forgive me. I'm going to try to to imitate his Ernie accent. Oh, I always cleans me shoes first thing in the morning, Bert, says the nankering Brian. Got to have me shoes cleaned. And then Felch continues, nankering was a stone's art form one of them had created, although I never knew which and never thought of asking. You could just use a nankering voice that sounded as if it could have a West Country or similar accent, or you could do a full nanker, which meant pulling your lower eyelids down with the first finger of each hand. Then you would place the second finger of each hand on each nostril and put your, push your nose up towards your eyes. The idea was to take on an alien personality to deride what the boys thought were absurd opinions or actions. It would also be used to make absurd suggestions to each other. Right then, I was the subject of nankering derision. And so that's the, the kind of thing he had to live with. He also got to witness brian jones personal life and and the first clue that brian jones is running a personal life is that the only mail they get at the apartment is official looking letters uh for for brian lewis hopkins jones although it would be brian l lh jones and they they and they never knew what was in these letters and we can only surmise but given the fact that brian jones had fathered at least Five, four, at least four illegitimate children by this point, and was well on his way to fathering a fifth. And said women and their parents um, were after him for money or support. That's probably what those letters were. Um, but let's go ahead and hear our next song. 
And this is uh, Ronnie Hawkins' version of Who Do You Love? And I'll explain the non sequitur when we come back. Seven miles of barbed wire, use a cobra snake for a necktie. Got a brand new house on the roadside, made from rattlesnake hide. I got a brand new chimney made on top, made from a human skull. Now come on, baby, let's take a little walk and tell me who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love? And that was Ronnie Hawkins. Uh, a Canadian rocker uh, doing Bo Diddley's Who Do You Love? And Robbie Robertson and the future members of the band are playing his backup. And Felge in the books describes in the book describes the moment at which Keith and Brian have stolen a big stack of records, I believe from the BBC while they were there uh, auditioning. And they just swiped a big stack of records because they were just horny for new records at all times. And they go through the stack of records and some of the stuff they've heard and they know they want, some of the stuff they heard they know they don't want some of the stuff they haven't heard so they listen to and this is one of the records they listen to and and brian jones in particular becomes obsessed with the feedback drenched guitar attack of robbie robertson and um in our next song we'll hear how that bore fruit for the stones but going back to the stones um story he, he describes basically this dynamic of keith and brian as as pals and sometimes mick is 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 in and sometimes Mick is not. But occasionally the dynamic would get overturned when Brian's baby mama, Pat Andrews, showed up with the baby and Brian retreated into uh, his separate room. Mick and Keith and Feld slept in one room and Brian had another room to himself. And uh, Brian became extremely, you know, shut the door and told everybody not to come in. And at one point, Felge came in that room because he had left a record in there or wanted his turntable back, something like that. And Jones literally attacked him with fisticuffs and apparently not apparently terribly effective. He didn't beat him up or anything, but there was lots of name calling and and ugly assaults. And and Felge is leaving the room thinking, you know, why are you such an asshole, Brian? (laughs) And then gets his revenge a little while later uh, after Pat Andrews has has left the the apartment with her baby after a pretty dramatic week for everybody and um and and you know Brian or Jimmy Felds notes that not only does Brian not appear to be giving her any money he appears to be taking what money she has um but he he's there when Brian opens one of these official looking letters and he sees Brian's nickname middle name that what the h stands for is Hopkin and Brian vows him, you know, swears him to an oath of secrecy not to share the name. And Felch uh, immediately runs to the next room and tells Keith and Mick that Brian's middle name is Hopkin. And that's what it's all about. And, and, and much fun is had at Brian's expense. But it's pretty sharp-edged fun. And that's the way these guys rolled. Uh, they were just – they, you know, I mean, they were harsh on each other. And, and there was kind of a no-mercy attitude but they also work together very well. He also describes the moment they come back from recording their first demo and have acetates and how excited they were and how Brian Jones was the most excited and, you know, was the, the absolute leader of the band. Then I want to find the bit. Oh, and you know, there's also one of the 
stories about Feld's that's made it into multiple books is how when they would come home from shows late at night, that Feld's would stand on the landing two flights up and spit, stand there with his totally nude with his underwear, filthy underwear on his head, uh, and, and sometimes spit down on them and sometimes even piss on them. And they thought that was hilarious. That's the that's the dynamic and then it also discusses the the dynamic that the points at which keith was the odd man out would be when brian and mick had double dates and when there were girls around and keith at this point was very young and very innocent and only interested in his guitar and so when brian and mick would be out with the ladies keith would be left behind and keith has later complained you know that Brian Jones is the the kind of bastard you'd you'd wake up, you'd go to sleep and you'd wake up and he's taking your last five pounds to go take his girl and Mick and Mick's girl out for drinks and left you there with nothing. So that's um again, why are you such an asshole, Brian? It becomes the question. I'm trying to find the part in the book where they uh me oh, yes, and there's another key part that um Felge witnessed, which was the moment when the Rolling Stones told Ian Stewart that he had been fired or that he had been demoted to roadie. And it was really more a matter of they told him he was out of the band and they told him by not having enough uniforms delivered. Like all, all six members of the Rolling Stones are backstage. Andrew Oldham comes in, hey, we've got your uniforms. And there's only five of them. And Stu's sitting there wondering, where's my uniform? And then they have a group conversation apparently and – Stu agrees to remain on as their roadie and he becomes their road manager and an integral part of their organization and absolutely one of the key, one of the only people in the Stone stories story that virtually everyone has nice things to say about that Ian Stu Stewart was, was the heart of the Rolling Stones in a lot of ways. But, but Felge was there and he witnessed, witnessed the moment that they told Stu uh, and it says, Stu was standing over by Brian's bed, and the other stones were around the settee, except for Brian, who was by the radio and nearest to Stu. Keith turned to me over his left shoulder as I came in and said, Stu's agreed to stay on as road manager for us. I smiled and said, great, but felt deeply embarrassed. I thought Keith should have put it another way. It did not seem fair to let Stu know that I had known about the situation before he had. Keith did it more as a natural reaction of relief, but Stu gave me a look that seemed to say, so you are in on it too. It was not a good time for anyone. Obviously, they had told Stu, who had reluctantly accepted the job as road manager in order to stay with the band. He stood with his hands in his pockets and looked crestfallen at the turn of events. Everyone was trying to hard, to, hard to act cheerful. The boys knew how upset Stu would be feeling. Then Brian started to make promises. You'll still be able to play with us on occasion, said Brian. We'll work something out, won't we, boys? The others made conciliatory noise, noises in agreement. Then Brian said to Stu, don't worry about it. We'll see you all right. We'll make sure you get a sixth of everything. With that, he put his arm around Stu's shoulder and hugged him. There was no doubt it had been an emotionally strenuous time for everyone. Stu did not want to be dropped from the band, but he also didn't want to stay in the way of any success that might come to the others. With that in mind, he made way and accepted the road manager position. 
For their part, the others did not want him out of the band, although the thought that preoccupied everyone was that the band would only have one chance to make it. The short period of two to three years was uppermost in everyone's mind. And so basically they had sold Stu out. And then Brian made these empty promises to Stu that he would get a sixth of the take, which somebody like Mick Jagger was never going to agree to, uh, to share a sixth of the take with their road manager. And so that's kind of a classic moment of Brian Jones undoing was, was empty promises. And also he became the one that, that Stu hated over that decision rather than Andrew Legoldum, who was the one who had made that decision and Mick and Keith and Brian had all agreed to that. Bill and Charlie didn't really get a vote. That's how the dynamic of the band worked. But let's take a sponsor break. And when we come back, I'll talk more about the early stones and Jimmy Felge. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And now we're going to talk a little bit about the night that the Beatles came to Edith Grove. Here's Jimmy Felge's account. He said, The night at Richmond, Richmond was the location they were playing, started off very ordinary. We arrived and unloaded the van and set up the equipment. People were now starting to turn up earlier and would be waiting for the band to arrive. Giorgio gave Brian a copy of the local paper with the write-up from the previous week. All of us wanted to read it. Brian was so pleased he would have forced us to read it anyway. Once we had read it, 
Brian read it again out loud to make sure we understood every word. He was very happy. And I should also note, this is before they fired Stu. This is before Andrew Logan. Luke Oldham is on the scene. Sorry for the bad chronology. I'm kind of improvising these episodes. And then um, he says, the article was short, but captured well the progress of the band and finished with some promising comments about their prospects. The stones were now in print through their own merit rather than a paid advertisement. The club was practically full by the start and surely would not hold that many more people. The stones, whether or not inspired by the press write-up, were in full swing by the middle of the first set. Then in walked the Beatles. I saw Giorgio fuss them past his interest table into the hall, and they then stood at the left-hand side of the stage and watched the stones. One by one, the stones saw them too as they played, and then very soon the word spread around the hall, the Beatles are here. People were straining to get a glimpse of the Fab Four, and Mick must have been aware of the distraction as he sang. Brian just beamed over the top of his guitar, and Keith's face seemed to light up for a moment, too. The Beatles were then invited up onto the stage as cheers and applause greeted them. John Lennon waved back, and then the other Beatles took their hands from their pockets and waved, too. They stood there looking neatly groomed in their long black coats, reminding me of the Everly Brothers at the Palladium. Apart from the fact that there were four Beatles, they could have come from the very same mold blah, blah, blah. And then after the Stones had finished playing, arrangements were made for the Beatles to visit the flat in Edith Grove. This time there was no hanging around as we packed the equipment into the van. With this done efficiently and quickly, Stu drove at, stopped at top speed back to Chelsea. Almost as soon as Stu had parked the van, the Beatles and several of their entourage pulled up behind in two cars and we all trooped up the stairs of the front room. Apart from myself, the six Stones and four Beatles, there were another four people. The room now held a total of 15 people, all of whom seemed to be talking at once. Mick stood in the middle of the room talking to John, while Paul leaned against the table listening to Brian. I saw Paul glance casually around the room to gain an impression of the surroundings. His eyes ran slowly over the furniture, walls, and ceiling. He did not seem unduly perturbed by anything. The look on his face said, I've been here before. Ringo looked at a chair and decided to sit on its arm as if imagining something could happen to his coat. He sat and talked with Bill and Charlie as Keith stood with Stu talking to George. The Beatles carried with them the air of a big professional outfit. All the members of their entourage were smartly dressed in the same dark-colored overcoats as the band, giving the appearance of one big team. I stood and talked with a couple of them, one of whom asked if I could get a drink. I gave him directions to find the kitchen, and he left the room. He came after a back after a couple minutes and said, I think I'll leave it and get something later. I looked at him and smiled and replied, I thought you might. Anyway, that was... Uh, the first encounter of the Beatles and the Stones is witnessed by Jimmy Feld. He also later in the book describes an occasion when the Stones are stars. They've had number one hits and, and the Beatles, of course, are stars. And even though Keith and Brian are thoroughly on the outs by this point in 1964, for whatever reason on this evening, they're hanging out together and they invited Feld to go with them to some sort of gala occasion that the Beatles had invited them to. And uh, he tells the whole story of of being with Keith and Brian as they intrude these filthy rabble into um, a very fancy bow tie uh, upper crust event that the, the sort of thing that had taken over the Beatles lives by that point in time. Um, so it's uh, the the next sort of big plot twist is the moment when, you know, the, the Stones leave to go on tour after they've um been signed up by Andrew Oldham and Eric Eastman's Easton. And uh, actually, I should mention that um, the way they handled the negotiations with Old, Oldman and Easton 
And the way they got out of their contract with Glenn John's recording studio, they recorded the demos and signed them for a year, is that they didn't tell Oldman and Easton that they had already signed a recording contract. They just signed new deals with Oldman and Eastman and then Easton. And afterwards, then Brian said, well, it turns out we have this contractual agreement. And you know, Easton in particular blew his top. Oldham, Oldham uh, definitely put Brian on his shit list for lying to him about that. But then they come up with a story and send Brian to go tell Glenn Johns' bosses that, well, the lads and I have decided to break up the band. It looks like we're not going to make it anyway. But we'd, you know, like to have the recordings to keep for our memories, and we'd hate it if some of us were to try to make it an entertainment if we had this agreement um, hanging over us. You know, would you take ninety pounds for us to buy out the contract? And this was Easton's money that he'd given Brian, and and Brian managed to talk his way out of that situation. But it um, is. Telling, and this, these are the decisions that that ultimately get Brian completely in the in the uh, on the shit list of Keith and Mick. The the thing that the side deal that he cut with Oldman and Eastman that really cut his throat with, in particular, Keith, but also Mick, was he negotiated himself an extra five pounds a week as leader of the band, and he also negotiated that he would get to stay in better lodgings than the rest of the band when he was on tour, and. That might have been gratifying to his ego, but that was an incredibly short-sighted decision. As soon as the rest of the band members heard about the five pounds a week, it was taken away from Brian, and as were the improved lodgings. And the irony of this is that as the leader of the band, Jones could have said, I want a ranger credit. I want to be the credited arranger on the record. And I don't think anyone would have disputed it because by all accounts – at the time anyway, but the accounts by Ian Stewart, accounts by Bill Wyman, the original account by Keith Richards, they all say, agree that Brian Jones is a complete tyrant who told them all exactly what to play on each song, and he was the arranger of the, of the songs, although with some input from the others. He could have asked for an arranger's credit, and this is something that Alan Price did with the animals and got an arranger's credit on their cover of House of the Rising Sun, which becomes immensely, you know, massive hit. And Alan Price, the keyboard player, literally quit the band the day his first royalty check just for doing the arrangement on the recording came through. So had Brian Jones known more about how the music business worked and know what to ask for, he could have asked for an arranger's credit and his power over the band would have been unquestioned. I think it's probably better for the music listening world that Keith and Mick were free to become the songwriters of the band and take over the band. And this period also catches another key moment where Brian loses control of the band. And that's because Andrew Oldham signs them, cuts a deal with Decca Records, Oldham and Easton's production company is going to record them, own the recordings, license them to DECA, a very sophisticated deal for the time, something that Alderman had learned from uh, getting to know Phil Spector because he had done PR for Phil Spector previously. Oldman was only 19 at this time, but he was a very sophisticated operator in the music biz for his age. And he had met Phil Spector and gotten some advice. And the main advice was own the recordings, record them yourself and license them to a record company. Don't sell them, you know, don't sign with the record company. And he turned over the selection of songs to the Stones. Brian, I'm sure, had an overwhelming decision-making in the process. 
and they picked the first song, which was a cover of Chuck Berry's Come On, which by all accounts was not successful. And then the song I'm about to play was their second single. And this was something that Oldman landed them because he bumped into John Lennon and Paul McCartney one day in London. They were a little drunk, having just come from a luncheon, some kind of another one of these official soirees they had to endure as the price of being the most famous people in England. And they're like, hey, Andrew, get in the limo. What's going on? And he jumps in and, and he tells them, you know, the Stones are trying to record their second single. They're trying to come up with a song for the second single. They have no idea. And can you help us out? And I'm going to play what the Stones were thinking of for their second single. This was apparently Brian Jones' decision. And this is a cover of Fortune Teller, the Libra and Stoller song by the Rolling Stones, originally unreleased. And that was Fortune Teller by the Rolling Stones, which was released briefly as their second single and then pulled from the shelves. And this was another part in Brian Jones losing control of the band is he had no idea how to do A&R for this band. He had no idea how to pick singles. Andrew Oldham in his uh, memoirs, which I'll discuss on another episode, said that was because Brian had contempt for pop songwriting, which I don't think is true entirely, but I do think he had a certain amount of contempt for pop radio and was trying to, uh, you know, tying himself in knots, trying to think of what might appeal to young girls rather than what would I like, or just having the confidence like Lyndon McCartney just knew what would appeal to the pop market. Jones was kind of lost. And the reason he picked fortune teller was because the stones had just been to Liverpool for the first time. And they had played the cavern, which is the club, the underground club that was the Beatles home home base uh, in 1961, 62, 63. By this time in late 1963, the Beatles are long gone from the cavern. But the Stones played with the Hollies. This is Graham Nash's band that had numerous uh, massive hits throughout the 60s. And they're just getting started. They've just fi finalized their lineup, the lineup that's going to uh, record their first hits and first few albums. And the Hollies are a really tight band and really good, and they have harmony singing. They've got three-part harmonies going, and that completely blew Brian Jones away. And by the time they were back at London, he had already been forcing the band to learn how to sing harmony. And Bill Wyman had an okay voice. Keith had a pretty bad voice. Brian had not a great voice, but he had the great ear and understood harmony. And so he's trying to teach Keith and Bill and himself how to sing harmonies in this fevered panic of we've got to catch up with these Liverpool and Manchester bands from the north who do all this harmony singing. And of course, Keith's harmonies and Bill's harmonies to a lesser extent go on to become a big part of the Stones recipe through the late 60s. But Brian, for whatever reason, was banned from singing on Stones records after their first album supposedly because he was not stepping up to the mic and singing audibly into the mic uh, during live performances. And there is an account of, of Ian Stewart uh, picking him up by the shoulders and shaking him and slamming against the wall over this, what are you fucking doing? Um, but that's not in this book. That's a, a different story. But 
that kind of tells you where Brian was losing control of this band he had put together and worked so feverishly. I mean, and this is another thing that Felch documents is that while Keith, while Mick was going to college and Keith and Brian are playing their guitars, Brian would frequently leave to go beat the streets. He was making phone calls. He was writing letters. He was meeting people like Giorgio Gamelski, like Andrew Oldham. He was out there trying to promote the band. He was the one that was insistent that the Rolling Stones were going to be he named the band. He was insistent that they were going to be a successful pop act in a, at a time when both Mick and Keith were not quite as committed to that idea. And and Mick in particular didn't quit the London School of Economics until after they had signed with Decca, after they had signed with Oldman and Eastman. And it wasn't until they went on tour with the Everly Brothers and Bo Diddley on a national tour of theaters that he wrote a letter to the to the dean of London School of Economics saying, hey, I've got this opportunity. I'd really like to take a sabbatical on my LSE degree, which he's never gone back to finish. But anyway, that uh, the point of that was that you know, Jones is or was this this overwhelmingly controlling figure early on, and Felds definitely backs that up. Now, another key story is the day after they've gone on that tour, when Felds uh, reconnects with them. I think he even left town to go to whatever town they were playing in, and he meets up with the Stones in the hotel. And it's as obvious as night and day that the Stones and Brian Jones are completely on the outs, that that all four of the other Stones are down at the bar hanging out. They see Felge walk in, hey, Jimmy, come over here. And he's like, where's Brian? And they're like snarling out oh, that fucker and, and, and you know, point out that Brian Jones is on the opposite side of the bar. And, and, and Felge is deeply shocked because the whole time he's been living with them, despite all of the infighting and insults and jokes back and forth, the Mick, Keith, Brian, Troika – is incredibly tight. Like nobody from the outside got between those guys. But by this point, it turns out that the rest of the Stones have learned about Brian asking for the extra five pounds a week. And they've also been touring with him. And he's essentially had a health collapse, partly through over drinking and other forms of abuse, self abuse. And they've seen his interactions with women blow up in his face and impact the band. Uh, you know, early on, he shows up at one of their first concerts after Oldham and Easton have taken over their management, and he's there with his baby mama and baby, his illegitimate child, and a and his pet goat that he's walking around at this lake. And it's absolutely not the image that Oldham and Easton want their pop group to be pushing at this time. Um, I think it was Marty Wilde, who was a pop star during the Cliff Richard, Billy Fury era that preceded the Beatles, who had announced his marriage and had been on a hot streak of three, four, five hit singles, announced publicly that he's getting married and never had a hit again. So it was very much poison. This is part of the reason John Lennon hid his marriage to Cynthia Lennon uh, in the same time period, although that came out in late 63, early 64, and they just went with it. And obviously that didn't impact the Beatles. But at this point in time in 1963, it was received wisdom in, in the pop world that if you're going to be a pop star, you had to be single, you had to be available because your audience was these horny young girls who wanted to be in love and fantasize that they could be, you know, your woman or your girl. And, and, you know, that wasn't going to work uh, for the Stones. And, they're also dealing with things like another mistress of, of Brian Jones, a young uh, 
there's so many of them. Uh, Linda Lawrence was one he impregnated and abandoned. And then I'm forgetting the name of another one who wrote her own book. I believe her name was Dawn. Apologies there. But in that woman's memoir, Brian Jones is initially presented as this romantic, charming, friendly, adorable character, incredibly sexy, who seduces this, you know, 17, 18 year old girl. I think he was 21 at the time. Um, and they have this torrid affair and he knocks her up. He gets her pregnant. And then at that point turns into snidely whiplash and hides from her, tells her, you'll have to talk to my management. It's just a complete villain about it. And the rest of the band no matter what they might have done later, at this point in time, Mick and Keith and the other guys are basically middle class to working class lads who are pretty decent guys. And they're appalled at what Brian is doing to these women and just kind of horrified um, to be on the hook for it. You know, the, these payments, these women are coming out of the band funds, et cetera, basically hush money. And Don Malloy was the woman's name. And, I, you know, I, I recommend reading her memoir if you're an absolute Brian Jones obsessive otherwise, or you're just interested in what it might be like to have had an affair with a, a up-and-coming rock star in their early 60s. But otherwise, it's not of much general interest. But nonetheless, it was insightful and, and gives some insight into what it was like to be in a band with someone like Brian Jones who – and not to – overanalyze or psychoanalyze or whatever uh had serious personality defects i think at the very least he was a clinical narcissist and it's entirely possible that he was a sociopath he doesn't seem to have been capable of feeling guilt or remorse for his actions so let's hear the final song and this is where you can hear the influence of Ronnie Hawkins' Who Do You Love on the Rolling Stones. This is their recording of I Want to Be Your Man. And like I said, Andrew Oldham had hooked them up with Lennon and McCartney. They'd already met the Beatles, but but he was the one who said, hey, could you write us a song? And Lennon and McCartney dropped by their rehearsal space and said, hey, we've got the song we're working on. How about we finish it? You know, Do you like this? And should we finish it for you? And the Stones said, yeah. And then, and then watched there as – got to watch Brian uh, – John and Paul finished the song right before their eyes and this is the Rolling Stones version of I Want to Be Your Man I Want to Be Your Man And that was the Rolling Stones doing I Want to Be Your Man, their second single, uh, number 12 hit on the UK pop charts. Their first song had only gotten up to number 21, which is still not bad. I mean, the Beatles' first song only got up to number 17, so they were on the charts. They were in play. But I want to, I want to Be Your Man really up to their game. And what happened was Andrew Oldham made this arrangement, and then he was bipolar himself and plunged into a deep, sudden depression uh, after all the success. And, and he went to Paris to get away from it and try to ride out this apparently deeply, deeply black depression he had sunk into. And so Brian Jones was in control in the studio. Eric Easton is officially the producer, but he was strictly basically a booking agent and had no, no hand in the studio. And there's photographs from the session, and you can see... 
Brian Jones, like literally passing out cab fare to each member of the band as they arrive. You can see Brian in the studio talking and pointing uh, to the to the engineer and making the decisions. And and Brian Jones essentially produced this track, I Want to Be Your Man. And if you listen to that version of Who Do You Love and all the feedback, I mean, what Robbie Robertson is doing is much more complicated playing than what Brian and Keith do on this record. But the notion of turning it up to 11 and letting the feedback roar is unmissable. And I think this this helped me understand kind of what what was it that Brian Jones brought to the table and it was this ability to reproduce sounds he'd heard on other records and play versions of songs very simply to do the easiest, most simple thing that would still be effective. And his slide guitar playing is is legendary on this track. I spoke to the Stanley Booth who wrote the best Stones book and I think the best rock and roll book ever written, The True Adventures of the Rolling Stones. And he was in L.A. in 1969 in the aftermath of Brian Jones' death just weeks before and is in the room with the Stones and somebody puts this record on. And they're all shaking their head at the amount of talent that Brian Jones displayed. The, the, not that it's any fancy slide playing. He's literally just playing the melody line of the song. But it's the tone of that slide guitar part that just cuts. And... You know, like I said, I've I've got this massive playlist of hits from 1963, and when you listen to this song in the context of what was on the radio and on the pop charts, both in the UK and the US, and and France and Latin America and other places, in 1963, I mean, the Beatles sound like Led Zeppelin compared to everything else, and the Stones sound like Black Flag. They just come roaring out of there with this mad noise, and that was what. Brian Jones was channeling and bringing to the table. Um, and I'll wrap it up with, with Felge's last words about Brian Jones. He, he, he ended it up with um, this. He said, someone said to me that no one ever writes anything nice about Brian. I tried to think of something I could say to correct that, but could not come up with anything. I've only been able to relate some of the things Brian said or the situations we found ourselves in at the time. You'll have to judge Brian's character for yourselves from his own actions. I cannot say that he went around giving flowers to old ladies because it would not be true. Brian was like an artist who could never paint the perfect picture. However brilliant he was or however hard he worked, there would always be a flaw. Everything could always be better. There was always one more brushstroke. I think Brian's much-talked-about isolation from the band started back in the Edith Grove days. His choice to use the lounge as his own private bedroom and not share with the others perhaps became the starting point for his estrangement. No one thought much of it at the time, but by not sharing the bedroom, Brian missed out on the closest parts of the friendships that developed. When you shared one room with someone, you talked to each other at all hours. You could lay awake for a couple of hours talking and joking as Keith, Mick, and I would, and that seemed to make you closer. In missing this, Brian created a gap between himself and the others. It was as if somehow a small piece of his relationship with Mick and Keith always remained missing. Despite all that has been said and written about Brian, no one would have, no one would have wished him harm. When you're with someone sharing your last food and money to survive, it makes a bond you never forget. You may fall out with someone, but ne never last forever. I like to think that in due course, Brian would have played with the Rolling Stones again had he survived. And that's Jimmy Felder's take. I think that there was zero chance that Brian Jones would have ever played with the Stones again just because of the amount of hatred he had incurred and earned from Mick and Keith by that point. And 
how big a part of it of their journey overcoming Brian Jones was. So that's been my episode. Um, the book is Nankering with the Rolling Stones, The Untold Story of the Early Days by James Felge. I think it's out of print. It's also been published under another title that I don't have handy. Highly recommended for Stones addicts. And I hope this has been insightful and enjoyable. For Let It Roll, I'm your host, Nate Wilcox. Follow the Letter Roll podcast on Twitter at Letter Rollcast and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Monday, Nate continues the Letter Roll Nightmare series with a recast of his 2018 conversation with Brian Jones biographer Paul Trinka. Letter Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.